You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. Picture this. We're in Harlem in New York City, and it's the 1920s. There's a cultural awakening going on. There's jazz and dance, theater and literature, big celebrities and lots of new talent looking for a break. And of course, because this is a show about trees, there is a tree that somehow fits into all of this, a symbol of the Harlem Renaissance. It's the tree of hope, and it was a good luck charm to black performers looking to make the big time. Garden historian and storyteller Abra Lee is here to tell the story of this particular tree's rise to fame, its demise, and its enduring legacy. That's all coming up. I'm Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree A long time ago, a mature elm tree stood on the east side of 7th Avenue between 131st and 132nd Streets in New York City, although 7th Avenue is now known as Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. It was an American elm tree. That is clear to me from photos of the 1920s, but it is long gone. Gone, too, is any trace of the Roaring Twenties. Go to the spot now and you'll see a sleek new apartment building that spans the entire block. Clean, modern, and bland. There are three new little leaf linden trees planted there, hoping to thrive, but otherwise there's not much to draw your eye. The Williams Institutional Christian Methodist Episcopal Church occupies one of the double doors, hardly noticeable, but a presence since the 1950s. But take a time machine back 100 years, and this block was thriving with a capital T. This was along the Boulevard of Dreams, full of nightclubs and theaters and dance halls. 7th Avenue and 131st Street was known to some as The Corner, with Connie's Inn and other clubs. Another one nearby was The Hoofers Club, a hangout for top jazz performers and tap dancers. And the biggest and most famous venue of the day was the Lafayette Theatre, with its huge marquee lighting up the night, and renowned productions that brought in droves of people from all over the city. Our Tree of Hope stood next to the Lafayette Theatre, and is most associated with it, as we'll find out later. It was the height of the Harlem Renaissance, which was, as Professor Cheryl Wall put it, a time when black people redefined themselves and announced themselves into modernity. It was an intellectual and cultural awakening that found its center in Harlem, but stretched to other cities around the country like Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and also to Paris, Berlin, and London. The backdrop was the Great Migration, which was the mass movement of southern rural blacks to northern cities to seek better wages and living conditions, and to escape life-threatening mob violence. It was a fresh start in a time of great optimism. And the artistic legacy, jazz, dance, fashion, literature, and drama, was a gift to the world. But back to our block on 7th Avenue. What was the Tree of Hope, 
And what did it have to do with all of this? I'd like to introduce you to my new friend, Abra Lee. Abra is a garden historian, storyteller, horticulturist, and former city parks arborist based in Georgia. Her degree in ornamental horticulture is from Auburn University, and she's also an alumna of the prestigious Longwood Gardens Fellows Program, which she completed in 2020. Recently, Abra has worked as a freelance horticultural writer and lecturer. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Fine Gardening, Veranda Magazine, and NPR. Her first book, Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers, is due out in 2025. Her work seeks to tell love stories about the folklore, history, and art of horticulture. Abra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. I am happy to be here with you today. Happy 2023 is so early in the year, first week of the year. Yes, happy new year to you too. And I think that um, I told you in one of our previous conversations that I was also, well, I also applied to the Longwood Fellows Program at Longwood Garden way back when, oh, <laughs> in wow, the early 90s. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. I went through a a grueling three-day interview process, and I did not get in. So congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. And I will say the grueling, the process still feels grueling. And what's interesting about that is that it may be self-formed by us, the interviewees, because the people at Longwood are wonderful, but it feels intense when you're up there. It really yeah. does. Yeah, and Longwood Gardens is so beautiful. It's in the Brandywine Valley in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, but we're here to talk about the Tree of Hope at your suggestion. And I was wondering if you could set the scene for this story. Where was it located? And when? how did the story first come about? The Tree of Hope was located on 7th Avenue and 131st Street in Harlem. And some people would say 7th Avenue and 132nd uh, Street in Harlem. And... It is a tree that um, people gathered under. And when I say people, I mean specifically the Black community in Harlem. So at the prime of the Tree of Hope, it is the Roaring Twenties. The Harlem Renaissance is happening. Black businesses are thriving. Black communities are thriving. This is in the era of the early 1900s. The post-Reconstruction era of America had, had occurred in early 1900s. And Black people... Black communities, many had migrated from the South to the North. So they're going to New York, places like Harlem, in hopes of seeking a better life. Yeah, I know that, you know, it could fill an entire course or encyclopedia about what the Harlem Renaissance was about and everything that happened. But, you know, how would you describe it? How is it important to American culture? Renaissance was the part, or maybe the first time, certainly the first time in America, where the illumination of Black art, Black culture, Black literature is, quote-unquote, mainstream. And it is validated by people outside of the Black community as Black culture in America being something hyper-specific and special to itself. So these people who are uh, descendants of the formerly enslaved have not only come to America, um, their ancestors through way of bondage, they have been stripped of everything they knew throughout the diaspora and recreated their own sound, their own style, their own music. 
their own art, their own way of acting. Jazz is birthed from this. So that is what, what the Harlem Renaissance means. It is, it puts honestly America on the map as um, an artistic contributor to the globe is what it does. Right. And as you were saying, people were migrating from the South to the North and had this area of New York City that became their own. And there was this flowering of theater and writing and music. And ideas um, and community and fashion and business and economics. And the Tree of Hope didn't start off being called the Tree of Hope. So there's this is this is where it gets fun. The Tree of Hope is like any other legend. It's bigger than itself and it has many iterations and many names. And some people, the old timers, a Harlem native or necessarily not, maybe not necessarily a native, but a person who is a uh, part of the Harlem community, they call them Harlemites. Many of them said that the Tree of Hope started off being called the Tree of Wisdom or the Tree of Knowledge. And it was no different than when you saw people gather in these open air spaces outside in Europe and have their symposiums and discuss the economy, discuss politics, discuss gossip. And with that, people were able to exchange messages. It was it was the message board. It was the Internet. It was the chat room. It was the everything for Harlem. And what in particular went on on this block? on 7th Avenue between 131st and 132nd Street. What was it known for? It was known most famously for the Lafayette Theater being diagonal to that tree. And the Lafayette Theater was Black Hollywood at the time. It is where uh, the successful performers were uh, doing their acts and their stage shows, whether it was comedy, whether it was music, whether it was theatrical, or it was a place where hopeful actors who were seeking to be the next person of fame and fortune would stand in front of this tree. And what was so significant is that if you were a Broadway manager or a producer, you could walk right outside of that theater and in a moment's notice, grab whatever type of performer that you needed to fill in at the Lafayette Theater. And that is when it starts becoming the Tree of Hope. I do want to tell you a name that is credited to naming it the Tree of Hope. Of course, there's many iterations. I can't validate this. But the person credited to naming the tree, the Tree of Hope, is a person named Lee Whipper. Lee Whipper. I don't know much about their story. But the legend goes that there were some performers who were unable to get paid for their work. And they were gathering under this tree, just like anyone else, stage performers. It was probably Um, hot. It was probably summer. Of course. It's the only tree. You know, I'm looking at the old photos and it's it's the only tree on on the block that I can see. Right. So naturally they would be underneath the tree. They would be underneath the tree. And what they did is that one of them rubbed the tree and pretty much prayed that they would get their money. They would get paid for the work they had done. They had done the work, but they hadn't gotten paid. And lo and behold, a few days later, they got their money. And so word gets out that this tree has magical powers. And uh, they said that people have more faith in that tree than they even had in themselves. And that is when it becomes the tree of hope. And you're right. There weren't other trees on that street to, to gather under. It was truly a gathering spot. So as what I read was that it wasn't just during the day, but people gathered, you know, underneath that tree all night long. It was like a meeting place 
probably performances were going on even afterwards um, at the Lafayette Theater. And people were there on into the into the night. Yes, uh, they were uh, comments that they, they said that the talk was uh, fast and free up under that tree. The talk, the conversation was fast and free. And if you were a gossip columnist, you could get more information from a two minute conversation under that tree than you could get from a three column written out of the paper. So that is what the Tree of Hope was. And it wasn't, we're not talking about 10 people, 15 people, 20. We're talking about hundreds, even thousands of people at a time gathered under this tree. And it sounds like, oh, Avery, you're telling us tall tales. Well, guess what, y'all? There are pictures that validate this and show thousands of people on the block lingering, socializing, meeting, uh, having community, having church up under the Tree of Hope. And so it really was... um, it was a friend of the community. It was a neighbor. It was it was everything to, to Harlem. Next up, I talked more with Abra Lee about the performance venues on the block, some of the famous performers there, and the eventual loss of the Tree of Hope and what happened. You're listening to This Old Tree. So... I'm looking at one of, or I looked at one of the old photos, and the tree wasn't actually directly in front of the Lafayette Theater. It was right next door, and the establishment there was Connie's Inn. Have yes. you heard of Connie's Inn, or do you know what what Connie's Inn was? Yes, I have Connie's name. It's Connie. Uh, the last name is a B. I believe it's a gentleman, and Connie uh, owned an inn there. And this was also a person who was a mover and shaker. I think they even call Connie a wheeler and dealer. Harlem. I looked it up. This was Prohibition, and Connie's Inn was a speakeasy. It was established by Connie Immerman and his brothers who immigrated from Latvia. It was a nightclub in the basement that featured acts like Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, Wilbur Sweatman, and Fletcher Henderson. Like the Cotton Club over on 142nd Street, the audience was for whites only. In 1934, it vacated and moved downtown, and the Ubangi Club moved into the spot. The Ubangi Club featured black, cross-dressing, gay and lesbian performers like Gladys Bentley. You know, there was a lot going on. So there was Lafayette Theater, there was Connie's Inn, there's another one called the Hoofers Club. So all of these establishments had performers and people would meet under this tree and would probably take jobs, you know, in, in different places. Yes, absolutely. And famous people. I mean, this is the thing. People would go there to seek a job, but people who had a job, the performers who were successful and already employed in the theater knew to pay their respects to that tree. So where they may not kiss the tree or pray to it, they would certainly touch the tree. This was a tree that people felt superstition about. They really felt that you were going to pay homage to this tree if you want your success to continue. So there was a, I'm saying that because there was a spiritual connection to this tree in the community. And if we think back of the the people that are under this tree that community has built, the ancestors, that would uh, coincide with with their beliefs about nature and and the power that that it does have. So it was was important. It was beyond important. It was was family. It was family. And its fame was most intertwined with the Lafayette Theater. If the Harlem Renaissance mainstreamed the illumination of Black culture, as Aber explained, The Lafayette was an early beacon. It was the first major theater to desegregate in 1913, 
allowing African-American theatergoers to sit in the orchestra alongside their white counterparts. The Lafayette staged Broadway hits such as Madame X and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The musical review that became known as Darktown Follies popularized two dances, Ball and the Jack and also the Texas Tommy which grew into the Lindy Hop. Duke Ellington made his New York debut here. The Lafayette players were the resident stock company, and they performed new plays and classics before almost exclusively African-American audiences. The Lafayette Theater was known for having the biggest, greatest performers of the day. So people like the great singer and orator Paul Robeson, uh, people like uh, Ethel Waters, the famous entertainer, tap dancer, performer, um, People like Bill Bojangles Robinson, who was considered or is considered the greatest tap dancer ever. This is what the Lafayette Theater produced. And these are names that you and I may recognize today from days of old. And there are names beyond their names that may not ring a bell today, but are even more legendary to those people. The Lafayette Theater was Hollywood. It was Hollywood for the Black community. It was where you went to to change your life, to change your generational wealth. Um, it, it had that level, to change, to change your economic status. It was that important. Now, my understanding is it was a combination of shows from Broadway, from downtown, but it was also, you know, original shows or plays written by African-American playwrights and, and writers as well. It was. It was a Black Broadway, and it wasn't just Broadway shows, it was comedy shows, it was opera shows, it was theatrical shows, any type of show that you, um, I think you just said vaudeville, that you can relate to entertainment, that is what happened at the Lafayette Theater. And it was something that was known coast to coast in the Black community. You got to think, this is a time in Harlem where Langston Hughes is roaming the streets, Zora Neale Hurston, the incredible writer, a great friend of Langston Hughes is roaming the streets. County Cullen, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington. I mean, the names go on and on. This is when the Tree of Hope is at its prime. So every name that you can think about, Louis Armstrong, Josephine Baker, that is what is attached to this tree. One name that you mentioned was Ethel Waters. Could you tell me about Ethel Waters and who she was? Ethel Waters was of her time, and I am no uh, entertainment historian, but I certainly uh, do know a, a little bit about her career. She was one of the, if you think of the most famous Black Hollywood actresses now, people like, I think of Octavia Spencer because I'm an Auburn graduate and so is she. You think of um, other Black actresses um, who have uh, succeeded. I don't know why my mind is blanking, y'all. I'm a horticulturist and I'm sitting up here thinking <laughs> I can see a hundred Black actresses in front of my face and I'm naming none. And uh, They were the celebrities of the time. Yes, they were the celebrities of the time. And that is what Ethel Waters was. I mean, she was, she had the fame, she had the fortune, she had the following, she had the the gossip callers uh, following her, the paparazzi, all of that. So that is what Ethel Waters was, one of the most famous people in America. Is there anyone And so this was before the Apollo Theater. Right. The Lafayette 
theater precedes the Apollo theater. And what happens is the 1930s come along. And what we know is that that is when the Great, the Great Depression starts at the end of the 1920s. And people really were holding out hope that things would turn around, things would change. But unfortunately, that was not the case. And the felling, when the Tree of Hope is removed. This was 1934. Um, it is considered the beginning of the end of that era in Harlem. And people say Harlem was never the same. Now, I understand that, that the Tree of Hope was removed because they did a, a street widening project. The city came in and widened 7th Avenue and had to remove the tree. And so yes. it was the automobile. This happened everywhere. I mean, this happened all throughout New York City. I'm in Providence now, and there were there's one uh, major boulevard called Elmwood Avenue that had uh, a double LA of American elm trees. And in the 1930s, to make room for commuters to drive in and out of the downtown, they widened the street and removed the. I mean, there was a big outcry. It was in the newspaper. So this is not unusual with with the automobile. A lot of we lost a lot of tree canopy, unfortunately. And the way that it was reported in the Harlem papers and in the black newspapers around the country, because this was national news in, in our community, was that this was the crash heard around the world. It wasn't a stock market crash. It was this tree crash into the ground. <laughs> and the reporters uh, stated that cars had become more important than pedestrians. And so the city came in and cut down this tree and people could not believe what was happening. I mean, they said that um, there was much weeping, there was much wailing. And if you've ever been to a, a good old fashioned funeral at a black church, a Baptist church or a country church, you know what that's about. Uh, there were uh, trumpeteers who brought out their trumpets and started playing the St. Louis blues in a wow. slow um, a sound. So there was a real... It's very upsetting. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And uh, so upsetting to the point when the Parks Department came through that um, the people who were witnessing this, the hundred, a crowd starts to gather. There's already hundreds of people there daily, but more and more people gather. And someone had the wherewithal to say, let me go get my saw. Let me go get my axe. Let me go get my hatchet. And I'm going to start cutting up pieces of these pieces of the tree. And they started selling the pieces of the tree on the spot. So right, they kept it and they handed it out and some people sold it. I don't know how they were able to sell it, but. Oh, there is, I mean, it's the tree of hope. And I got the saw, Doug, you don't have a saw and you want this big chunk. You can't just walk off with it for free. How are you going to get it to your house? <laughs> and it's the 1930s. It's, I mean, there's right. hustle in there too now. These are business folks. So, right. um, they, so yes, there were people who bought portions of the tree. There were people who grabbed portions of the tree. They said, look, if you didn't have any money, you were picking up the sawdust off the street and putting it in your pocket for this tree. People were taking roots off of this tree. And that was how important it was to them. And it was so important that once the tree was completely failed and gone, there were people in Harlem that avoided that area altogether moving forward. They didn't want any parts of it because they believed it to be a bad omen when that tree was removed. Here's the title from a New York Times article about it from August 21st, 1934. Wishing trees end saddens Harlem. Charmed circle where noted stage folk prayed for jobs is bereft of fetish. Wood cut for souvenirs. 400 watch in gloom as source of old superstition falls in widening of 7th Avenue. Aber then brought out an article of her own from her files. It's so interesting. Like, I love these headlines. 
it says, I don't know if you see this one, it says it was murder, Jack. I mean, people were like serious about that. So, and that was a first person account um, of the tree being filled. Oh, wow. And you can see the people sawing. I don't know if you can see that. You can see the folks sawing the tree up. And wow. It was murder, Jack. I know, isn't that incredible? Like, that's you what find that? people, um, in that's a, so that's the thing. In you mentioned it was written in the New York Times. This was in the Amsterdam News, which was a black paper. So, most black, I mean, the Times was the Times, but this was the news to them. So, so pieces of the tree are being sold, taken away as souvenirs. And I'd like to get to one in particular. There was a piece of that tree taken by or purchased by perhaps Ralph Cooper Sr. That's correct. And knowing his influence, knowing who he was and his relationship as an entertainer, as a a famed person of that community. Well, who was Ralph Cooper Sr.? Ralph Cooper was a a performer. He was an MC. He was a man about town. He was uh, a very handsome black man. He was there were Clark Gable, Gone with the Wind was popular at the time, and he was considered Dark Gable, which I think is hilarious because he's a black guy and he's just this dashing, charming, beloved uh, a member of the entertainment community. And knowing who he was, his relationship to the Lafayette Theater, being a performer there, having a great business relationship, I highly doubt he paid for his hunk of the tree. But the way legend has it is that he had uh, a portion of this tree when the tree was cut and had a stage hand mounted stage left at the Apollo Theater. So the Apollo just opened? Yes. The Apollo Theater on 125th Street had actually opened in the early 1920s, but it became a venue for Black performers and patrons in 1934, becoming more like what we know it is today. But the Apollo had been known for its amateur nights. When you're at the Lafayette, you're a professional at this point, or you're trying to become a famous professional. Apollo is amateur night. And that is what it is known for. Even to this day, um, they still have some amateur nights at the Apollo. Maybe not like the heyday, but they're still there. And Ralph Cooper was the MC ABC, which was a new broadcasting company in America at the time, had gone to the Apollo in November of 1934 to live broadcast nationally the amateur night. And on that night, Ralph Cooper, and and perhaps before, maybe not specifically on that night, he had mounted, he had had someone mount a portion of the Tree of Hope on the stage. And the intent was that you needed to touch this tree. This tree was a part of the community and you needed it to hope that you weren't going to get booed off the stage because at the Apollo during the amateur night, your success and your failure is judged by the audience. And they have a gentleman called the Sandman that would come out with a hook and pull you off the stage if you were (laughs) booed. And at one point, they would shoot you off the stage, not literal bullets, but blanks. And the audience would react to that, these blank guns, and they go pow, 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 and shoot you off. But if you weren't booed off the stage and the audience was roaring and excited about you, it could change your life. And that was what uh, Ralph Cooper brought. He brought the national fame and national attention um, through radio through that, honestly, what we're doing now. Um, And and that is what I feel like illuminated the Tree of Hope uh, into infamy, to be honest. So he took a slice of that tree. It was about a foot tall and about 18 inches in diameter. And he had a stagehand take it, shellac it, and apparently it put it on a gold pedestal 
That's right. And mounted. That's right. And it's right on stage. To this day. And it's been on stage until this day. And since, since 1934, it has been on that stage. It has. And anyone who goes on the stage at the Apollo, and I can tell you, I have watched many an amateur night, Showtime at the Apollo when I was growing up. Uh, there is not a person. If you walk past the stump and don't touch it, they redirect you, go back. You won't. They won't even <laughs> let you walk up to the mic without touching that tree stump. Yeah, you can't let them go on without touching the tree of hope. No, and if you don't, you honestly start off on the wrong foot with the audience. You really do. So um, it is it is that important. I mean, we're talking almost 100 years now. And so does every performer touch the, the tree of hope before they go on stage? Obviously on amateur night, but the professionals too, you know, would Stevie Absolutely. Wonder touch? Gladys Knight, Beyonce. There's not a professional Black performer, entertainer who has performed at the Apollo. No matter how great Michael Jackson grand you are, you have touched that tree. Yeah, if you haven't, I don't think we know their name anymore. So the Tree of Hope, when it was on 7th Avenue, was along the curb and it got removed. But the stump of it was moved to the median, the new median. And there was a plaque. Bill Bojangles Robinson was responsible for doing that. And he got the mayor. Uh, mayor um, LaGuardia came out and there was a big ceremony. Could you tell me who Bill Robinson was? Yes, Bill Robinson was the most famous, probably the most famous living performer. We just said her name today is Beyonce. And in his day, he was that. He was the most famous performer there, not just in the Black community, famous worldwide. Make them play that crazy thing again. I got to do that lazy swing again. Hi-ho, doing the new low down. Got my feet to misbehaving now. Got a soul that's not for saving now. Hi-ho, doing the new low down. And this was a person who had the respect of the Rockefellers, uh, Fiorello, um, if I'm saying his name correct, uh, Mayor LaGuardia. So when the tree was removed and there is an obituary in the paper and there are poems written and there, as I said, there is a whole procession to mourn this tree. People are wiring in their condolences. Bill Robinson goes to City Hall. He goes to the mayor and says, long story short, what have you done here? You have destroyed this community. And guess what? You got an election in November, don't you? So it was no coincidence that two days before the November election, Mayor Fiorello, Bill Bojangles Robinson, who wasn't just only one of the most famous entertainers in the world, he's also considered the mayor of Harlem, the commissioner of the park department that cut the tree down shows up. Other mayors of other boroughs or people who are considered quote unquote mayors show up on that day and a big hunk of that uh, tree is replanted in the middle of the, the the median, the island, in that street. From what I can tell, there's there was a piece of the stump, and then there was also a new tree planted, a new tree of hope. There was a new tree planted of hope, and then it was replanted in another location in 1941. So what we're referencing now, you and I, is the tree of hope is brought down in late August of 1934. And Two days before the November election of 1934, the New York election, the stump is replanted. And it is a big deal. There are thousands. And there's a beautiful picture that shows thousands, at least 3,000 people show up for this replanting of the stump. So that is how much. And this is in the middle of the Great Depression. So this is how important this tree is. And this is how powerful um, Bill Bojangles Robinson is, that he is able to, uh, you know, throw up the bat signal and say, y'all need to get y'all's tails down here and right this wrong 
that you have done in this community. I'd like to read what it says on the on the plaque. So the plaque says, the original tree of hope, beloved by the people of Harlem. And in quotes, you asked for a tree of hope. So here it is. Best wishes, Bill Robinson. And to give context to your audience, Doug, the old timers, at the time the trees cut down, people, and by people, I mean the reporters, the gossip columnists, the 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 folks that that lingered on the street and, and did their uh, daily will and dealing went to what they considered the old timers, the oldest people they could find in Harlem, the hundred year olds and said, hey, how long has this tree been here? And they could never settle on a day. But some people who were of a certain age of that time remembered that tree being there since 1875. So we're talking 1934. So they knew it had been there at least for 50 years at that point. Um, so that is the level of meaning that this tree had to the community where the old timers were like, when I was a child, it was there. So it, it was so sad when it happened. It really was. You are listening to This Old Tree. I've got more of garden historian Abra Lee, who gets into the true meaning behind Harlem's Tree of Hope in just a minute. The tree became a player in the arts folklore side of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, which obviously was so much more. But are there works of art or literature since then that the tree itself has inspired? Yes, there was a Broadway play that was written about the tree. I think it was called The Wishing Tree. And I'm not saying that it was on major Broadway. It was probably on the Black Broadway, meaning in Harlem, uh, that it was shown. And then we get to the 1960s and the 1970s. This tree is still not forgotten. And there are artists that come along, uh, like one of the fathers of Afrofuturism, Algernon Miller, to create a beautiful steel sculpture um, that is an abstract sculpture that um, honors the Tree of Hope and honors this legacy in Harlem so that it is not forgotten to this day. And there was also a time, it was either late 1960s or early 1970s, there was a ball that was in honor of Cab Calloway and the person with the best costume would win this trip on Eastern Airlines. The airline is defunct now, but was the big deal of their time, the Delta of their time, the British Airways of their time. And the person came dressed as the Tree of Hope and had the pictures of Ethel Waters and of Cap Calloway and of Bill Bojangles Robinson attached to their outfit. And they won this top prize at that ball. So this is a tree that it, they say legends never die. This tree is there's someone in Harlem today. Ain't just someone, many someones that can tell you um, if there's top five most famous things out of Harlem, including the this tree is the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, it is that important. Why do you think a tree drew the attention of these performers and their fans um, as a repository for their particular hopes and dreams? It, it very well could have been a wall or a stone or a door handle or something, but why'd they connect with this tree? And, and why do you think a tree? The connection to the tree is certainly ancestral, it's communal. I think of trees, of Black people gathering under these mighty oak trees in the South that are along the river and having baptism. I think about people having full-on church up under these trees. I think about the first reading of the Emancipation Proclamation um, stating that, that the Civil War was over and that uh, slavery was no longer legal in the United States happens under a tree. So that is where community happens for many Black people. Tuskegee, um, one of the greatest uh, universities in the United States, certainly um, the, the historic HBCU, Historically Black College and University, is built on a, a former plantation, you know, covered in trees. 
at that time. So trees are, I, I think about them almost like you think about the, the grand ceilings of uh, these churches all across the world. And Europe. that's what that canopy is to people, to Black people. And in these places where we can gather and feel free and be our unapologetic selves and speak in the language that we want to speak and the street slang, you know, this is where we can create music. This is where we can um, exchange words and ideas. So that is why that was important to that community. And honestly, I, I still would argue to this day. It's funny, the theme of tree canopy acting like a cathedral or the roof of a cathedral is one that's found in other traditions as well. And we spoke about that in a previous podcast about the American elm and how it forms cathedral-like canopies over streets. And so it's interesting that you brought that up as having to do with this tree as well. And again, Harlem at this time, the Great Migration, where you see millions of Black people leave the South, where the black, the South is 90% Black and uh, half of the Black South leaves and goes to Pittsburgh and New York and Chicago and Dayton, Ohio, seeking better lives. Even my own family members um, were part of this Great Migration. And I say that because this is a bunch of country boys and a bunch of country folk, men and women, country people that are really rolling around Harlem at the time. They're not necessarily mostly native New Yorkers. And so they're used to hanging up, hanging under trees in the South. And I don't mean that um, in a in a uh, insulting way in, in terms of lynching. I mean, gathering. I guess the better word I should have used would have been gathering under trees in that Southern heat, that humidity getting under the shade. So it would have been a normal reaction for them to, to be a part of this tree. And the fact that this tree symbolized hope where parallel at the same time, since I brought up the word lynching and, and hanging from trees in the South, oak tree isn't necessarily looked at as this great mighty thing or the great mighty elm because it is used as domestic terrorism. So there's just this really polar opposite thing of, of this tree, particularly in New York, representing hope and light and not death and destruction, uh, the way that it would have represented possibly in certain parts of the South at the time. And really, that's one of the legacies of the Harlem Renaissance is that Black people have been able to reclaim their histories and stories and tell it for themselves. Absolutely. And that was what the Harlem Renaissance was. And you had the writer, someone who I certainly consider the, and not just me, I mean, many people consider her the star of the Harlem Renaissance in terms of writing Zora Neale Hurston, where she unapologetically writes about the Black community. She's not trying to be W.B. Du Bois and go to school in Germany. She's fine writing about the country, Black community in Florida, in her hometown, Eaton, Eatonton, Florida, Eatonville, Florida. So that is what the Harlem Renaissance is, where Black people are saying, we've got our own culture, we've got our own style, our own art, our own everything. We don't have to recreate with the Europeans, the Italians, um, even our own brothers and sisters in the in, in the continent of Africa are doing, or in the Caribbean, we got our own thing here. And that was what was so special about the Harlem Renaissance. And honestly, that's what's so special about the Black community in America today. This is a community that was stripped of their culture, their language, their food, their parents, their relatives, their everything, their clothes. And then they everything is taken from them and then they recreate something completely new. And that is how we have jazz and hip hop and Negro spirituals and gospel music and soul food. And the list goes on and on. And the community is continuously reinventing itself. And then with the interview about to wrap up, 
Abra dropped a big surprise about an ancestor of hers. As we are talking about the Tree of Hope um, making its way to its forever home at the Apollo Theater, outside of the pieces that were kept by the community, I have a fun fact Harlem story to tell. And there is a woman, and your audience can uh, look up her films on YouTube, named Mabel Lee, Mabel Lee. And Mabel Lee is a relative of mine. She is uh, someone that was raised uh, as my grandfather's sister and um, made her way, migrated from the South to the uh, North in New York, an incredible singer, dancer. She passed away in her 90s, not too long ago. And when she passed away, um, her name was illuminated outside of the Apollo Theater. And I was fortunate to meet her many times in my lifetime and Uh, She came down to not only my grandfather's 90th birthday when my grandfather passed away. She was so important to our family and most importantly to to my grandfather um, that we held off on his funeral to get Mabel Lee down here. So she was truly an Apollo legend. So that's amazing. When did she perform? Oh, my gosh. From the 1930s, 40s. um, And the soundies, I almost want to compare them maybe to short films or music videos. But just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Um, if you look up Mabel Lee and look up some of those films, um, there's a real famous one. I think it's called The Cat Can't Dance that she did. And she's singing and the trumpet players behind her. Um, but that's my connection to the tree. And you better believe Mabel Lee, my relative, even though I haven't touched the tree of hope, I have a relative that has. And she's passed on as well. But uh, she was truly a legend of Harlem and a legend of the Apollo. And honestly, God rest her soul. If she was here, I think you and I would be up there today getting a VIP tour of that tree. Here in 2023, what inspires you about the Tree of Hope? What inspires me about the Tree of Hope is uh, the possibility of what can happen tomorrow that as polarized as this country is, and maybe that's, I, I would argue is an overused word, but really it's not. That is a very factual word. There is still hope. There is still a possibility. There is still a way there is still a way to economic empowerment. There is still a way to um, exchange ideas that will better this country, better this world. The tree represents that, for lack of better words, that we really are the change that we want to see. And it is possible, but it is only possible through human interaction and community and, and gathering that community again. So I think if one word the tree of hope represents to me, it is community. And, and we must get back to that um, to build and to be better and to succeed and thrive and survive. Abra, I really enjoyed talking with you today. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about the Tree of Hope and your thoughts about that. Thank you for having me, Doug. This has been so much fun. And um, I'm just, I'm appreciative to be with you today. It's a real honor. Thank you. If heritage trees are living links to the past, in this case, It's a stump upon the Apollo stage. It's a good luck charm, but it's also a symbol of possibility and of community that every performer is invited to take part in. From Duke Ellington, to Abra's great-aunt Mabel Lee, to the stars of today. But don't go away. I've got several tree story shorts to share with you. These are three to four minute audio stories that listeners submit about a meaningful tree in their lives, and we've got some good ones. First up is Carol Kingsbury, 
who tells us about an historic oak tree she knew growing up in Dedham, Massachusetts. When I was a kid, I had a 1958 sky blue Schwinn bicycle that I rode all over Dedham, Mass. When I would ride down East Street on my way to Dedham Center for a root beer float, I would pass by this huge, very old tree. One day, I stopped to look when I noticed a plaque in front of it, which said, Avery Oak. Its trunk was the biggest I had ever seen, and there were scarred places where major branches had once been. I knew Dedham was one of the oldest towns in Massachusetts because the Fairbanks house was just down the street, and it is the oldest wood-framed structure still standing in America. But here was this living thing that had been there for hundreds of years. Wow, I thought. The people who built that house went by this tree every day. Even at that young age, I had a glimpse into the relativity of time and an appreciation of all that this tree had witnessed. I remember being sad when I read in the paper that a thunderstorm had finally taken it down in 1972. The article said that they wanted to take the tree to build the USS Constitution, something about the twists and turns of the wood being perfect. Folklore has it that Mrs. Avery is the one who said, absolutely not. Good girl. Absolutely not. I love it. Thanks, Carol. Now here's one from writer Gil Revel, who remembers escaping to the tree in his backyard when he was a boy. Hello, Doug. It's Gil Revel. I grew up with a 40-foot apple tree in the backyard of our family home. This was in small-town central Wisconsin. I wish I could tell you the specific species. I queried my sisters about it, but that precise fact seems lost in history. We went through all the possibilities. Was it a Blenheim Orange, maybe? A Duchess of Oldenburg? Maiden Blush? We don't know. I do know that the tree represented a central icon of my childhood. I sometimes dream about it to this day. My mother was a longtime kindergarten teacher and also a dedicated home cook, and every season we would gather the tree's very generous harvest. The green and reddish fruit were small, flavorful, but not particularly sweet. My mother called them cooking apples. She canned homemade applesauce, with the family enjoying the fruits of her labor for the entire year. For myself, though, the tree served an entirely different purpose as a sort of convenient improvised jungle gym. The trunk probably measured 25 or 30 inches DBH. At the five-foot mark, a seam suggested evidence of an early graft, and apples from the one side of the tree were subtly different from those on the other. The split in the trunk was at a perfect kid height, allowing easy access for climbing. Early on, I was able to scramble into every area of the tree, into both of the asymmetrical branch networks. At the top of one was a thick horizontal crook that served as a sort of hammock. I could lounge there, close to the sky, largely invisible from earthbound humans. As a kid, I was an inveterate reader, so there are pictures of me in my apple tree airy, engrossed in a book. I remember being called down to the dinner table, but leaving books up there so I could get to them later. 
This spot was one of my favorite summer hangouts throughout my younger days, from grade school up until junior high. After that, seduced by the charms of the automobile, I put away childish things. Since I've now become a parent myself, I shudder retrospectively about my habitual tree climbing as a youngster. I never fell out, but I could have. I honor my brave mother and father for allowing my constant excursions. But I think this solitary backyard apple tree represented a refuge, providing vital and necessary aid to my early physical development, yeah, but also helping to foster my imagination. The view from up there provided perspective. My ground-level problems and preoccupations appeared puny. I could dream freely. Recreational climbing, not applesauce, was for me the tree's true harvest. The next piece is by Jim Voorhees, a retired grounds manager and entomologist from upstate New York. This time, it's about the loss of a tree, specifically a leaning pine on his college campus. Sometimes, a tree can have power as a symbol that manifests itself in unexpected ways. Greetings, fellow tree lovers. My story is from the Adirondack Mountain in the very northern part of New York State on the campus of Paul Smith's College. I am an alum of the college, class of 1972. The story begins in the late 1850s when Paul Smith purchased approximately 50 acres along the shore of Lower St. Regis Lake. Paul was to build a hotel for hunters and fishermen, which he guided for, and their families. Eventually, it was known as a resort for the rich and famous. More and more lands were cleared and structures built, but at some point, the land surrounding a very majestic, very leaning white pine, Pinostrobus, either had to be spared or removed. Paul Smith decided to keep the tree and several other very mature white pines near his hotel ground. Moving along, in 1930, the hotel suffered a devastating fire. That, along with the Depression, the hotel was never built to its original glory. Paul and Lydia's son, Phelps Smith, had inherited everything. Upon his death, his will dictated that all his wealth, including property, shall be used to start a college of arts and science and would forever be called Paul Smith's College. The college opened in 1946. In 1947, the student council sponsored a contest for a college logo, college symbol. A sketch of the leaning pine was submitted and it won. It kind of stuck as the, co- as the logo of the college. Soon the leaning pine image was copied on everything. College stationery in the yearbook, on hats, shirts, coats, everywhere. You could not possibly come on campus without seeing it immediately. It was very close to the the entrance of the college. As you entered the college, the tree leaned to the left. It was absolutely an icon. Right from the beginning, um, when the school opened. On November 12th, 1971, a couple of disgruntled students chopped down the leaning pine very early in the morning. Several hours later, I was standing right next to that college symbol while it was laying on the ground. In disbelief, it was like, why would you do this? 
At first, the culprits were a mystery, but a few months later, a student confessed. The whole story is every forestry student had to take this introduction to forestry course. And part of it was learning how to take care of your axe, how to sharpen it proper, properly, some things on the handle of the axe, and you were graded on it. And historically, the grades were not very high. And so some folks got their axes graded. They didn't like the grades, and they showed the school that their axe was adequate and could chop down a tree. Today, the leaning pine, the original symbol of the college, is still the college symbol. A disc cut from the trunk before the log was sent to a sawmill was saved by the college. The disc has recently been refurbished and is displayed in the college library with wall plaques adjacent to it, identifying a timeline of historic events, utilizing the growth rings to mark those years, referred to as dendrochronology. The disc from the Leaning Pine tells the story of its birth in 1690, and we know its last, last growth ring was 1971. So this famous and historic Leaning White Pine was 281 years old. I do feel fortunate that I'd seen it alive, if even for just over a year, while I was a student at the college. And that concludes my tree story. Thanks to Jim for that bit of lore from Paul Smith's college. At the time, that must have been shocking to all Smitties everywhere. But I love that the symbolism of the leaning pine lives on. Jim was inducted into the Paul Smith's Hall of Fame in 2022 for his support and commitment to the school, and he did extensive research about the leaning pine incident, featured in a video called Smitty Story Hour, The Leaning Pine. Go ahead and YouTube it if you're interested in hearing more. Next up is Georgia Silvera Siemens, an urban ecologist and founder of Local Nature Lab, whose home base is in Washington Square Park in New York City. Local Nature Lab has a mission to monitor, educate, support, and advocate for biodiversity and local nature in urban areas. When she's not spending time in the park noticing nature, she's hosting the podcast Your Bird Story, which centers the voices of everyday people's encounters and relationships with wild birds in cities. It's great. Please check out Your Bird Story. But this story is about some Kwanzan cherry trees near Washington Square that everyone loved. Hi, my name is Georgia, and this is my tree short, which is about a row of cherry trees in Greenwich Village, New York City. If you're not familiar with this species, Pruna serulata cultivar Kwanzan. The flowers are cotton candy pink, big, I'm talking like almost palm of your hand big, and many petaled. You might see this cultivar listed as Kanzan, K-A-N-Z-A-N, but when I learned this species, the cultivar was Kwanzan. New Yorkers don't stroll. We definitely hurry along sidewalks and pretty much any other place that you see us. But the spring flowers and equally stunning fall color of Kwanzaa and cherries at this location caused people to slow down, to stop, to notice, to take photos. 
The trees were an unlisted landmark in the neighborhood. Everyone in the neighborhood knew about them, and visitors and tourists were wowed just like we were. In 2016, the seven Kwanzans were removed as part of a mega construction project. The community loudly pushed for these trees to be transplanted. At the time, an arborist hired by the institution whose uh, project called for the removal of these trees assessed that only three of the trees would survive, or actually said might survive transplantation. The institution in charge of the building project said they couldn't find suitable locations And so, with a permit from the city, removed all seven trees. Now, reportedly, the trees um, were donated to a nonprofit that recycles and repurposes wood. It was only after hearing that the institution needed a city permit for removal that I realized that the trees had been growing on public property. I wish I had measured them so I could tell you about their ecosystem services, their regulating benefits. But to be honest, the significance of these cherries, which are sterile and didn't attract or don't attract insects, was cultural. People took joy in their seasonal changes. I can't believe I just said that because my gripe with tulips from tulip bulbs is that they are poor in environmental benefits. But I guess you can now see my tree bias. Thanks so much for listening to this tree short. You've been listening to This Old Tree, and I'm Doug Still. Again, I want to thank Abra Lee for being such a warm and entertaining guest. I'd like to thank all our Tree Story short submitters, and I'd like to thank you tree lovers for joining us today. You can get links and information about Abra and the trees and places we talk about on the show website, thisoldtree.show, as well as Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you'd like to submit a three-minute tree story short about an important tree in your life, record it on the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to me. I would love to hear from you. And remember Abra Lee's Aunt Mabel? Well, you guessed it. This is Mabel Lee singing The Cat Can't Dance. Enjoy the rest of it, and see you next time. There's a guy in Salt Lake City Who's got a lot on the ball But on the dance floor it's a pity He ain't nowhere at all Now there's a character in Harlem Cat ain't worth a dime And yet I know I'd die if he said goodbye Cause he ain't no square He's riding 